Welcome, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. Um, I am really delighted to be able to spend the next few minutes or hours um, with a, a dear friend, colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Jordan Qualia, who's uh, a really impressive bio and really a more impressive friend. Um, we, we've done some really cool things together on the relationship between uh, lucid dreaming and virtual reality. And so we want to talk a little bit about that study. Um, there were a number of really provocative questions that came in for Jordan that we're going to also discuss. But let me start by telling you a little bit who this remarkable individual is. So Jordan is an assistant professor at Naropa University's Contemplative Psychology Program, the director of the Cognitive and Affective Science Laboratory, and research director for the Compassion Initiative at Naropa University Center for the Advancement of Contemplative Education. Jordan has served as panelist for multiple United Nations Day of Vesak. Is that how you pronounce that, Jordan? Vesak, Vesak, yeah. Uh, yeah, Vesak conferences, fellow and senior investigator for Mind and Life Summer Research Institute and contemplative social justice, justice scholar for contemplative mind and society. His research, supported by funding from the Mind and Life Institute and John Templeton Foundation, has been featured in leading scientific journals and books and relies on a range of tools from neuroscientific measures to virtual reality to study topics such as mindfulness, compassion, and lucidity. And so, it, you know, Jordan was very, very gracious to invite me along to engage um, with him in a study that we did that we'll be talking about that ended up being, because of his generosity, um, my first co-authored scientific paper. So I will always be forever grateful to Jordan for helping me find my way into the beautiful, rigorous world of scientific papers. <laughs> the, the extraordinary way you have to um, structure, write, uh, create rigorous analyses and the such, I, I found it really quite enjoyable and utterly delightful. Um, so Jordan, thanks a ton, my friend, for joining us here. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. And so let, let's start um, with maybe you telling us a little bit about, and I, I guess I should say this initially as a, not a disclaimer, but at least a qualifier, that um, as a kind of cognitive neuroscientist, you, you have a deep, deep interest in using VR to explore the nature of reality. But um, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not... Um, uh, I mean, how can we say it? Uh, an expert, a um, VR researcher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So VR is just a supplemental tool for what you do, uh, but that's not to say you certainly don't have formidable amount of knowledge to share. So, with that said, tell us a little bit about your first VR experience and, and what that was like for you. Yeah, um, yeah. So I first tried virtual reality um, before um, there was these highly immersive headsets sort of readily available to consumers. Like um, later throughout the interview, we might refer to the Oculus Rift, for example, as one that anybody could buy right now if they wanted to. Um, but this was at a psychology conference before these kind of technologies hit the mainstream. And there was an opportunity to try this as um, there was a company trying to sell their own headset and software to researchers to use it in the laboratory. And so I sort of signed up and waited my turn. And um, it was an experience quite similar to what we've gone to now research in the sense that the VR experience involved the illusion of being up 
high above the ground. And so I think I rode an elevator or something to that effect onto the top of a building. And then they had me step to the edge of the building. And I remember that the person that was facilitating said, okay, now step off the building. And I remember that my body said no very clearly, like do not take a step forward. But um, in my mind, I played a little trick on myself in the sense that I imagined where I actually was because I couldn't see it visually. I remembered the conference room I was in and the floor in front of me, and that enabled me to actually take a step. Um, but as I plummeted toward the ground, I nonetheless felt this kind of fight or flight uh, experience. And in their uh, program version, everything went red when I hit the ground. Um, and then the person facilitating kind of ripped off the headset and was laughing in my face at sort of the, my ghost white uh, appearance. <laughs> and it wasn't 10 minutes later or something like that. I had to go give a, uh, a presentation at the conference, um, oh. still sort of uh, in this fight or flight mode. So for me, it was a really, um, there was uh, a very clear effect on my system of, of uh, the experience. And I knew right away that this was a tool that could be used to study lucidity because, um, because it offered this kind of controlled illusory environment. Um, and so it wasn't until years later that, you know, we actually were able to get the equipment and do the research, but I knew at that point that this had potential in that way. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and I have to share my first experience, which was was equally, I could say, transformative. I have to tell you. I mean, um, I went to a, a VR um, setup and immersed myself. I think for well over an hour in just a number of different programs, and one somewhat similar. In fact, it was the one that we ended up you ended up choosing for our study, which you'll talk about quite shortly. And um, I, the minute I put the headsets on, my first response was, OMG, this is the closest thing I've experienced in uh, waking life to a lucid dream. It, it, I immediately saw the connections of cyberspace to cognitive space and how we can explore both using the medium of VR. And again, there's, there's just so much to say here, but, but perhaps the most compelling aspect of this for me as as remarkable as the actual immersive experience when i was doing it was was what happened when i took the goggles off when i took the headset off that was almost more powerful because i took that headset off after having it on for over an hour and i looked around me in you know the so-called real world room that i was in and my first response was like whoa, this is a really cool program. Look how clear this one is. <laughs> and it was like, it was like, holy moly, Batman. Like, what is the fundamental difference between what I am experiencing right here, right now in my so-called waking life and what I just experienced in this VR medium? And so this is what we're going to be talking about over the next hour or so because I really want to start to ping this around. And, and you know, we are in the same wavelength here where both virtual reality and lucid dreaming provide remarkable opportunities to explore the nature of reality. Because if you're talking about something virtual, um, it immediately implicates something that's not. In other words, virtual is only defined by its opposite, in other words, reality. And so by uh, exploring virtual realities uh, electronically or through lucid dream states, we can most certainly gain insights 
into the fabric and the nature of reality altogether. And, and this, to me, is where um, some of the many, many potentials of lucid dream, or I should say virtual reality, arise outside of its, as we know, extraordinary entertainment um, values, you could say, how that's really where people are riffing on it. I, I'm not sure if you know, Jordan, but I'm actually consulting with a team of producers, VR producers and movie producers in L.A., who are creating a program of around VR to explore uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, and so I'm advising around that. And, and what I do want to say before I turn this back over to you to, to describe our first story and, you know, your inspiration behind it was one of the really exciting things that Jordan and I had the opportunity to do is we were able to bring into his lab um, a host of quite remarkable people, um, Lamas, Rinpoche's, meditation masters, including Pema Chodron, Sonia Rinpoche, and others. And it was really quite something to see um, people who have worked so deeply with their own mind and awareness to experience this. And, and uh, I remember in particular, Sonia Rinpoche was really taken by the experience. And in fact, for several years afterwards, and I was somewhat at some of these events, he almost couldn't stop talking about it. He, he just kept bringing up his experience in the VR lab with us. Um, and the, the minute Rinpoche took his headset off, without any prompting from us, you remember he said, well, my goodness, this can totally be used for things like dream yoga, which means lucid dreaming. It can totally be used for bardo yoga. And I'll come back to that later, how you can use VR to prepare for death. So let's, let's uh, give you the airtime here. Tell us about the inspiration of the study that you invited me to join you with. And tell us a little bit about the study altogether and some of the conclusions that, that uh, we came up with. Sure thing. Yeah, um, in addition to that personal experience that I had first trying VR um, and my own lucid dream experience, the inspiration I think it's maybe most accessible um, for understanding the study is a scene from the Matrix movie, uh, first Matrix movie. And so there's a scene in there that... Um, listeners will probably remember called the jump program where Nia is tasked with jumping from one building to another. And he's first learned, uh, or he's just only recently learned that the matrix is illusory. Um, and so this is one of his first sort of tests to see whether he's the one or not. And um, Morpheus goes ahead and sort of easily leaps from one building to the next. And Neo um, is uh, still fe feeling quite a bit of, real fear that this is not so illusory. And so when he leaps off the building, he actually plummets to the ground and um, hits the ground. And then Morpheus says a famous line that your mind makes it real. Um, and so for me, the, the study that we did was a way of kind of creating a little jump program in the laboratory using VR um, in the sense that we were asking people to engage in an experience that involved the illusion of height. Um, they were seemingly 50 stories above the ground, um, walking a wooden plank um, high out over the city. And um, when they reached the end of the plank, then we added this prompt in that, you know, if they'd like to, um, it was optional, but if you'd like to, um, please go ahead and take a step off the plank at this time. And so you had this um, challenge in some ways to awareness similar to what I faced in my first experience of can you sort of see through the illusion enough um, to sort of downregulate your fear in a way similar to what Neo was tasked with and take this kind of leap of faith um, that there is a floor beneath you even though you can't see it. 
Um, and so in the study, the, the goal was to see whether there was variation in the extent to which people could see through the illusion of that experience, um, what we ended up calling virtual lucidity, um, very analogous to lucidity in a dream. Um, and then whether that variation actually predicted the likelihood of stepping off, whether it predicted, you know, how afraid they were during the experience. And then a really cool additional piece, um, which was part of the initial inspiration for reaching out to you was, you know, getting to go to your uh, dream yoga retreat up at Chimbala Mountain Center and really test whether um, this practice that you teach there uh, of illusory form yoga, and I'll let you explain that a little bit more, but whether people who are training in that um, would also have higher levels of virtual lucidity since they're training in uh, lucidity for, for dreams. And um, long story short, you know, the study did find that there's this variation in virtual lucidity that maps on to um, uh, how much fear people were experiencing as they were at the edge of that plank um, and how likely they were to, to take a step off. Um, and moreover, the people that had this uh, illusory form training at your retreat had higher levels of virtual lucidity and seemed even more likely to step off the plank. So, Yeah, we had some pretty colorful uh, characters walk the plank. I mean, in the video uh, that yeah. you put together um, that we, we showed at uh, the Integral Conference, um, just for our listeners, it's, it's really quite dramatic. So, you know, Jordan shot the video with participants permission where people people would step out and, and it, maybe you can describe a little bit Jordan's describe a little bit about the the setup because what really um caused the 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 immersion in it was the fact that you had juxtaposed the virtual reality setup with the setup in the room so tell them a little bit more about having the plank in the room i mean that's the thing that really kind of right. you people Right, yeah. So the program called Richie's Plank Experience, uh, put a little plug in for that because it's available, you know, if people want to try it, has this really cool tracking feature um, that allows you to um, sort of map the plank that you see in the virtual world onto uh, whatever distance and sort of width and so on of the plank that you have on the floor in front of you in the lab. And so we did just that. We sort of matched it up. And, uh, and so then when you step out onto the plank from the elevator, you're experiencing kind of the feel of that wood beneath you and uh, the tracking of yourself all the way to the edge of the plank is a, a big reason why it feels so realistic is actually that sort of one-to-one um, -one mapping of your steps on the virtual plank matching your steps on this real plank in front of you. But, you know, of course, the big difference is that you're a couple inches off the ground in the lab on this plank versus uh, 50 stories up um, in the VR environment. Yeah, exactly. And then, and so again, for our listeners, try to imagine we, you know, we had people that would literally, they just couldn't walk out on the plank at all. I mean, they would just sit there and just say, no, 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 I can't do it. Or they'd go out about three or four feet and then they drop down to their knees and grip, grip the plank and their knees would be shaking or, or they, they'd walk out to the end and, and some of them would like just go out in style, right? So they'd walk out to the edge. And just do this, like, you know, glorious swan dive to infinity. Um, and so the variation was was really quite uh, entertaining and, and sometimes even hysterical to watch. But what, you know, what's so, yeah. what I want to explore here, Jordan, with your permission, is um, this idea of presence. Because to me, in so many ways, this is, it comes to the crux of the matter and how it ties in so beautifully with tenets of lucidity and non-lucidity altogether. But but I think it's helpful for our listeners to know how presence 
um, quote unquote, is defined in the context of the uh, virtual reality and how that, of yeah. course, differs from what we know as presence in the context of contemplative training. So um, t- talk to us a little bit about Total. that. Yeah, so um, at least, you know, on the surface, they're really different. Um, in a virtual reality context, um, the term presence has been used as kind of a core concept um, that you can kind of think of at the experiential center of virtual reality in the sense that it's the um, sort of main psychological goal of uh, the virtual reality technology is creating this kind of what they call an illusion of non-mediation. Um, and really, um, put simply, what presence is about in VR is making you feel somewhere other than where you actually are. Um, so there's this goal of kind of this uh, transportation of your senses uh, to a new location. And um, so, you know, in effect, what it is, is like sort of put the, the goggles on and um, it's tricking your senses. It's tricking your especially visual and auditory senses into feeling like you're in a new environment other than where you physically are. And so the more that you can do that, the, the more quote unquote present you are <laughs> in virtual reality, which um, at least on the surface um, is antithetical to how we think about presence from a contemplative standpoint, um, where presence means, you know, feeling uh, more aware of where you physically are, feeling more situated in your current context. Um, yeah. So really Really, yeah. in that context, I mean, presence is actually absence in that context. And really, to me, and this is where, this is what I want to talk about for a second, because this to me is one of the more revelatory aspects of, of VR altogether, because it talks about truly the, the phenomenology of capture, the phenom- phenomenology of non-lucidity. And, and I want to spend just a few minutes on this, because this has been a big one for me. And um, I like to look at this, Jordan, and I'd love to hear your comments on this. In terms of, of this kind of, you know, we can explore the phenomenology of, of absence or capture um, in three ways. And, and one way, and again, these are very, very um, easy for us to kind of connect to. One is, you know, when we go to see a really, really great movie, um, one of the things that makes a, a movie really great is, in fact, its ability for us to be captured by it. We, we surrender to it. We, uh, we fundamentally allow ourselves, you could say, to go non-lucid, to be captured by the swept up, um, you know, what some neuroscientists, I think our friend Judson Brewer talks about this, the swept up continuum, you know, we allow ourselves to get sucked in. And, and, and interestingly enough, we pay for it. You know, we actually pay for non-lucidity. We love to get lost in, in movies, internal and external. And so for me, I, I, I find this so fascinating because what makes virtual reality more real than even a movie is it's it's closer in your face you know i mean the vr setup you know when you're seeing a movie you're in the dark theater and the theater is designed to kind of suck you in but when you're in vr oh my gosh i mean the theater is the is the headset you everywhere you look you're still in the theater and so because you have less capacity to contact um reality personally speaking reality the immersive capacity is directly proportional to this level of proximity so you know the closer it gets into your face the more you get sucked in and so to me it gets that is such a a fascinating insight so the what i refer to you know is the third stage of this immersive trajectory which is when um we put the screen so to speak on this side of our face and that's of course how we get sucked up swept away captured 
um, and going on to sit the very contents of our minds. That, you know, now the screen is not 20 feet away. Now it's not four inches away like in a VR unit. The screen is on this side of your face. And so in my experience, when I engage in meditation, one of the things that meditation does is in fact create a sense of perspective, which, which AKA that's virtually synonymous with lucidity. You, you step back, you have a new perspective. The display is still there, but you see it with a new sense of space, with a new sense of, of distance. And, and meditation works in exactly the same way that, you know, if you have the headset on, Actually, there's three ways to do this. Let's go back to the theater, if you don't mind me riffing on this for a second. So imagine you're back in the theater, okay. and you're totally into the movie, totally sucked up, and all of a sudden, the roof gets blown off, and the walls fall away, right? And and all of a sudden, the screen is now saturated with vast open space. And so the movie that, like, Gone with the Wind, you know, you're, like, gone into the movie, the movie's still there, but all of a sudden, because of the infusion of space and light, you're no longer swept up in it. And so similarly with VR, you have the VR headset three inches from your eyes. You, you pull it away six inches. You pull it away from a foot, a foot away from you. The display is still there, but it's lost its capturing power. And in exactly the same way, when you meditate, you create this kind of, not dissociation, that's the near enemy, but this differentiation from the display of one's mind and therefore that display no longer has the power that it once did and so for me that that was one of the major takeaways and still is of the spiritual as psycho-spiritual aspect of vr that it instills this type of perspective i.e lucidity and then virtual lucidity so I, i'd love to have you talk a little bit more about that very notion and how your our study together um revealed to you the 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 true benefits of developing virtual lucidity yeah yeah i think that uh like i said like on the surface it initially seems as though these constructs are juxtaposed that somehow if you um, increase lucidity you're going to decrease presence um but when you dig a little deeper there's this possibility of you know there is the one way of sort of pulling the goggles further away from your face but there's also uh, the sort of experiential version of that where you're cultivating lucidity from kind of the inside and the, the goggles are staying, staying put, so to speak. Um, and uh, in that, that way, I think that there's this opportunity for lucidity to actually heighten our engagement with the virtual experience. Um, so it's a bit paradoxical. And if you look at the literature on presence in VR, they haven't paid too much attention to this paradox, but they have noted it in a few different places that there is this kind of uh, paradox in their version of presence where people are conceptually aware that they're having an illusory experience, but they're nonetheless responding um, in their physiology and in behavior and psychologically um, as though it were a real experience. And so there's this kind of question mark about how how is it that, you know, you can be conceptually aware of this, but have this um, uh, more embodied sense that it's real. And I think in, in a lucid dream context, uh, anybody that's had a lucid dream can relate to that tension. You know, there's awareness that this is a dream, and yet nonetheless you might uh, be experiencing strong emotions in response to a dream character or, um, uh, you know, standing at the edge of a cliff or whatever it may be. And I think you write about this um, in your book as well. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So I yeah, go ahead. No, 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 I, I, you're, the stage is yours. Continue. Yeah, so I think that actually, you know, as time has gone on, um, 
researching this topic, I'm now thinking of lucidity as orthogonal to uh, presence in, in the VR sense of presence. And really that lucidity challenges and has the potential to uh, inspire, I think, a richer notion of presence in virtual reality research, one that has um, this added imperative of, of actually being awake to the fact that it's an illusion as it's happening. Mm-hmm. And that somewhat paradoxically, when we do that, there there is greater opportunity to lean in and sort of delight in the display of uh, the virtual experience rather than it necessarily detracting from enjoyment. Um, and the methods, you know, are the findings um, were consistent with that in the sense that people actually enjoyed the experience more when they had higher lucidity. So. Yeah, that's really fantastic. And, and, and again, it ties into what we did, um, Jordan, when you invited me to come in and, and give this brief um, loose reform practice for our the studies, our, the participants in our study. And so for those of our listeners who may not be familiar, um, a loose reform practice is a, is a unique contribution from the world of dream yoga. You really won't find it in the classic world of lucid dreaming. And in fact, a loose reform practice is of such paramount importance in the classic meditation texts that many of them subsume a, a dream yoga and hence uh, lucid dreaming as a subset of a loose reform. In other words, a loose reform is the main practice. And so what Jordan inv- invited me to do with the study was give people a brief introduction to the practice of a loose reform, which, as you intimated earlier, Jordan, helps them kind of um, grease the skids for lucidity within the context of waking life. And in our night school trajectory, as you may or may not know, Jordan, is part of our nightclub um charter, so to speak, we, we have mm-hmm. a curriculum of six tracks. And the second track, um, after science and, med- and the medicine of uh, sleep, is the daily practices, which include things like meditation and the practice of a loose reform. And so for those of us who are listening to this that are really interested in uh, maintaining sustaining lucid dreams, um, both, loose re- both virtual reality and a loose reform are really fantastic ways to do that. In the classic meditation text, a loose reform is one of the principal ways to prepare for lucidity in the dream state. And then also, um, Jordan, you can totally riff on this better than I can. Um, studies have now shown, I think Jane Gockenbach and others, that um, those who engage in virtual reality are really greasing the skids for lucid dreams altogether. In other words, those who do virtual reality with some constancy have a higher likelihood of, of lucidity. Um, is that, I'm, I'm curious, is that also your personal experience? Right. I don't know that it's my personal experience because there's so many sort of other factors that have mixed in since I've started trying VR, but I definitely see the potential for that. And it's interesting to think about, you know, the two pathways sort of like how lucid dreaming and lucidity and dream yoga can inform VR. And we can talk about that maybe some more too. But also then this, this pathway that you're speaking to, which is kind of like how can VR be used as a tool potentially to facilitate and support uh, not just lucid dreaming practice, but then um, maybe also the development of things like wisdom and compassion as well. Um, and my sense is that, um, you know, there's very few other metaphors that we have that are as kind of experientially compelling um, as VR for um, a lucid dream. Like you said, it was the closest thing you had experienced in waking life to a lucid dream. 
So just on that basis alone, it seems to me like it's it's really ripe for um, this kind of training and kind of development. Yeah, and, and talk to us a little bit more, Jordan. We, you know, we, we're both familiar with that quite provocative New York, yeah. um, New Yorker article that came out last year, the work of Thomas Metzinger and others. I mean, I, I found it really riveting, and I'll, I'll provide a link to our listeners to this article because in this article, and I want Jordan to speak to it a little bit, what these researchers have found was they were able um, to use VR to in, uh, really invoke states of empathy and compassion. So can you say a little bit about that? Share a little bit about um, that particular aspect of how, and I think this is no small thing, how they, my understanding, if I recollect, was they, they brought some of these headsets, really, did they, did they not to the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos, right? And they put, they put them on and allowed people to experience a refugee in Syria. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, so a nickname for virtual reality, you know, especially now these sort of more consumer versions that have been uh, becoming more mainstream is empathy machine. So the virtual reality is a profound way of sort of putting you in another person's shoes. And so, you know, like presence has to do with making you feel like you're somewhere other than where you are. Um, virtual embodiment, which is the main focus of that article, is about making you feel like you're someone other than who you are. Um, and so you can, for example, put on the body of someone, uh, from a different race or ethnicity, um, you know, you could become or inhabit someone who's a different size or shape than you, um, different gender, or, you know, who lives halfway around the world and is in a war zone or whatever it may be. Um, and there's some really compelling research, even more recent, um, than what's featured in that, uh, New Yorker article coming out about this potential of virtual reality. Um, not just to create empathy in a way that's analogous to watching a movie or reading a book or something to that effect, but that its effects go uh, above and beyond that, um, both in the intensity of the empathy and in terms of the duration, um, as well as the behavioral effects, like uh, the likelihood of donating to people affected um, uh, and featured in the, the VR experience. So, uh, for me, yeah, this is one of the main contributions of VR, you know, from a contemplative practice perspective, I like to think of it more and more as not an empathy machine, but potentially, you know, with the right, uh, tools and so on becoming a compassion machine. Yes. Um, and to leverage this same kind of empathy training, but to pair it with compassion training and, um, you know, even practices like Tong Lam that involves some visualization could be sort of mirrored in the VR world. Um, for this purpose. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't know if I should share this with you, Jordan, but I, I had a wonderful opportunity to hang out with. Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.